Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to John 7? We're going to be in John 7 this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have people coming right now to get you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please just take that home and keep it as our gift. And uh, like Taylor mentioned, my name is Cal. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. If you're visiting this weekend, if this is your first time, uh, thank you so much for worshiping with us and hanging out with us. It's really a pleasure to have you. And uh, we have been working our way through the series of the book of John. And uh, we've seen a ton of great stuff. And um, actually, it's uh, really glad to be, uh, I'm really glad to be back here with you. Um, my dad's preached the last couple weeks because I was in Israel uh, with about 100 people from our church. And we partnered with uh, Harvest up in Traverse City. But we got to do a tour of Israel for about 10 or uh, 11 days. And uh, here's what I will say. The tour was great. Um, the people all got along well. It was super meaningful. The guides were amazing. The weather was good. It was a really, really good trip. And I would encourage you, if you have the opportunity to do a tour um, in Israel, we're going to try to do them like every two years. Um, We would love to have you. It's a really, really great time. But I do need to be honest about one part of it. There's one part of the trip that's absolutely awful. And that's coming home from Jerusalem back to Grand Haven. That travel day is brutal. Uh, We loaded onto our buses at one in the morning And about 28 hours later, we arrived back at our Grand Haven campus. And uh, the worst part of the whole day is actually just being in the Tel Aviv airport. You get to the Tel Aviv airport at about 2 in the morning, and our flight took off at 6.15. So we're like, man, we've got four hours plus. Like, we're going to be there at our gate in plenty of time. But it took three and a half hours to get through security and checking your bag. Just incredibly long lines. And so it was... 3.30 in the morning, I'm in a line of like 600 people waiting to get my bags checked. And this line is moving so stunningly slow. So I'm already kind of like freaking out a little bit. I'm grumpy. I should not be awake uh, this early. And um, I'm in line and we're just moving slow. And the the line right next to me on the right-hand side of me is the line for first class, right? And so that line's always open because not that many people travel first class. So it's like you see people just walk up right to the front and you're like, oh man, it'd be nice if if I was in that line, but I'm not. And so we're just working our way slowly. And then all of a sudden, uh, again, about an hour into this line, I see an Orthodox Jewish person walk up in the first class line. And when I say Orthodox Jew, you might know what I'm talking about. He has the hat that they wear. He's got the tassels of hair that go down past his chin. He's wearing the the very, very dark suit that they wear. He's carrying a briefcase. And he goes to the attendant in the first class line, and they're speaking in Hebrew, but it's obvious what's going on. He's trying to use this line to get his ticket punched, but he doesn't actually have a first class ticket. So I see them talk and I see the, the, the person working behind the desk point to our line and say, you need to go back there. You don't have a ticket for this. Well, the guy gets angry and all of a sudden he's waving his arms and he's yelling and he's upset and he's getting really emotional. And the worker's like, there's nothing I can do for you. You need to go back to that line. So they argue for about three or four minutes and then the guy just storms off. I'm like, well, that was some entertainment, at least while I'm standing in this line. And... Uh, About three minutes later, this guy walks back up to the uh, first class line. And I'm like, oh, no, here we go. And the worker does the same thing. Like, you don't have a first class ticket. You can't come in this line. Well, this guy, he takes his ticket. He takes his passport. He throws it on the ground. He throws his briefcase on the ground. And he goes, I'm not picking it up. And he goes, I'm not moving. 
And you can tell the security guards are standing there, but they don't really want to get uh, uh, in an issue with an Orthodox Jew. And they're arguing back and forth. And the guy's like, I'm not going to help you. And the guy's like, well, I'm not moving. And there's this standoff for about seven minutes. And, And finally, you see it happen in the face of the worker where he's like, it's just not worth the fight, right? And he rolls his eyes and he's just like, give me your ticket. And he starts to check him through. Now, you need to understand, I am a very, very high truth and justice kind of person. And in this moment, I feel this swell of anger bubbling up in me. And like everything in me wants me to be like, no, this isn't going to happen. And I'd be like, I'll go to the back of the line with this guy just to make sure he doesn't get to cut. It's not right. You don't just get to throw a fit and, and get to go to the front of line. Like I'm getting ready to say this. And thankfully in that moment, I had a filter that kicked in. And that filter said, hey, Cal, you do not want to get in a fight with an Orthodox Jew at 3.30 in the morning in a Tel Aviv airport, right? <laughs> Things I never thought I'd have to say to myself. But um, it's like nothing good is going to come of this. And at the end of the day, like I just had to laugh. And, and here's why. This man had an agenda. He was not going to wait two hours in this line. And he was willing to risk getting arrested. He's like, I'm just going to put all of my chips in the middle of the table. If I'm a big enough jerk, they'll let me through. Now, was that right? No. Was it the loving thing to do? No. Was it morally correct? No. But what you see is, is this guy had an agenda and no one's getting in the way of it. And uh, this morning, the title of our message is called Competing Agendas. And uh, in John 7, we're going to see Jesus have to navigate a sea of people's agendas about him. And it's going to put Jesus in very difficult positions. So look at verse 1. We're going to be talking a lot about agendas today. It says this, it says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So Judea, just so you know, that's where Jerusalem is. So Jesus can't go to Jerusalem because the Pharisees want him dead. Now the Feast of Booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he is to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Look at verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. All right, here's the big idea this morning, church. It's this. It's that your greatest obstacle to following Jesus might be your own agenda. That your greatest obstacle to truly following Jesus might actually be your own agenda. Oxford's Dictionary defines an agenda as the underlying intentions or motives of a particular person or group. It's the motives or intentions that drive us. That's our agenda. So here's the first point. All of us have agendas, don't we? All of us have motivations or intentions that drive our lives. Everyone comes into this place today with an agenda. Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say you have an agenda. All of us have motivations for what we want to be, what we want to see happen in our life. And for, depending on who you are, these agendas can look very different. Here's a couple of examples of what agendas might look like. Some of you, you might be driven and motivated by health. 
I want to look good. I want to feel good. I want to be healthy. I want to be active as I get older. And so I'm going to eat right and I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to the gym every day and I'm going to pursue this. For some, it's, man, I just want to be married and I want to have a family and I want to have kids and grandkids and I want to have close relationship and you're motivated by family. For some of us, it's, man, I just want to have deep relationships. I want to know that there's people in my life who really know me and get me and are there for me if I need them. And I want to be that person for other people. I don't want to be alone. For some of you, it's like, man, I just want my kids to like me or I want peace in my home. For some of us, it's I want to be well-respected. I want people when they hear my name to be like, wow, that's a good person full of integrity. I want to be a mentor. For some of us, it's, man, I want financial security or I want to provide my kids with opportunities that I never had. So I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to make a lot, but I, I want to be a benefit to my family. Others, it's like, man, I um, just want to prove other people wrong. Maybe you had people in your life who didn't give you a ton of credit, or maybe you weren't a great student, and it's like, now I'm going to prove these people wrong. All of us have agendas. So here's what I would ask right now, even as I'm talking, can you start to maybe pray about or think about what are the agendas that I kind of have day in and day out? What drives me? What motivates me? And here's what I want you to hear. Agendas aren't a bad thing in and of themselves. A lot of these things are good things. Agendas by themselves aren't wrong. What happens is it becomes an issue, though, when our agendas run wild and they're the things that lead our lives rather than the Lord. That's when they actually cause a lot of harm and chaos in our hearts. So in this passage, we're going to see three different groups of people that Jesus interacts with. All of them have different agendas that are causing them to either be in conflict with Jesus or, or, or to not want to follow him all right, so look at verse 2 again. Let's see that first group of people. It says this, Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one who works in secret, if he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Right, so the first group of people is his brothers, and their agenda is, Hey, Jesus, I need you to go prove yourself. Right, you see that. They're like, all right, Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, go to Jerusalem and start doing a bunch of miracles. Stop hiding out here in Galilee. Like, go make something of yourself. Go prove it. And you have to remember, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. So everyone's talking about Jesus. He's super popular in Galilee, but he can't go to Judea because the Pharisees are trying to kill him. And now the Feast of Booths, that's one of the big three festivals in the Jewish calendar. And as part of that festival, everyone has to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is in a tough box. If he goes to Jerusalem, he knows the Pharisees are going to try to kill him. But Jewish law and this festival says that everyone has to go to Jerusalem for this festival. And the brothers are like, well, hey, Jesus, how about you stop being scared? How about you stop hiding out here in Galilee? Go up to Judea, go do your miracles. And if you're really the Messiah, prove it. Jesus' brothers are like, hey, stop the confusion. And I want you to think a sec. Imagine how difficult it would have been to be a brother of Jesus. Right, you're just a normal working class dude, more, most likely a carpenter like their father was. And all of a sudden, everyone's talking about your brother as the Messiah. 
and he's teaching and he's doing miracles. And now you know that the religious leaders are angry at Jesus and he's picking fights in the temple. And the brothers are like, we've got to go to Judea for this festival. Are we going to be safe because we're related to you? They're like, everyone's asking us who you are. They're asking for our opinion. You're a celebrity. We didn't ask for any of this. Jesus, you're making my life complicated. You're making it difficult. You're making it complex. And what they're saying is, is if you're really the Messiah, how about you just go silence all the doubters? Stop making our life difficult. Prove yourself. Look what Jesus says to them at verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. By the way, I could preach an entire sermon just in verse 7 that when you tell people the truth, it will come with a cost. Then Jesus says, you go up to the feast, but I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. So Jesus is like, you guys go up. You're not going to have any problems, but I'm not going with you. Okay, but just a few verses later, we see that he did go up to the feast in private. So can I ask you a question? Did Jesus, did Jesus just lie to his brothers? He, he said, man, I'm not going to go up to this feast. You guys go. And then later it says he went to the feast, not publicly, but in private. And, and some are like, man, I thought Jesus was sinless and he just lied to his brothers. We see it right there in the text. Well, he didn't lie. And you need to understand that this festival, this feast, was an entire week-long festival and celebration. And at the beginning of the festival, everyone would come and the teachers and leaders would announce themselves and there'd be big parties. And then at the middle of the week, there were different festivals. And at the end of the week, it ended with the temple with specific sacrifices. So Jesus is saying, listen, I know the Pharisees are going to be looking for me as everyone's entering into Jerusalem. He goes, I'm not going to go then because I'm going to get caught and it's not my time to die yet. But Jesus still goes to Jerusalem. He just enters midway through the week and he does it quietly. He doesn't make a big deal as he enters the city. Okay, and here we see the next group of people who have an agenda about Jesus and that's the crowd. Their agenda is freedom from Rome. Look at verse 12. It says, and there was much muttering about him among the people talking about Jesus while some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Okay, you have to remember, it's the Feast of Booths. Everyone's in Jerusalem for this festival. These are the same people in this crowd who would have been part of the crowd that was fed when Jesus was teaching and he fed the 5,000. Do you remember what they did after Jesus fed them? They literally like, we're going to make you king. We're going to take you by force. You're going to overthrow Rome. And then they like chased him for a couple days throughout Galilee, trying to forcefully make him king. But now that they're in Jerusalem where the Pharisees have the power, now they're not even willing to talk about him openly. And there's rumors and there's mutterings and they're like, yeah, he might be a good guy, but he might also be a false teacher. And it's amazing that this crowd that was so on fire for Jesus, now that they're in a different circumstance, is very, very quiet. And here's why. Because here's what the crowd wanted. They just wanted freedom from Rome and they were going to tie themselves to whatever group could make that happen for them. So when Jesus is in Galilee and the Pharisees aren't there, they're all for Jesus. But when the Pharisees are there and they have the authority and they have the power, now they're getting very, very quiet. This is what the crowd's being like. Have you ever had that person in your life and, and you know they're the kind of person that always has to keep all of their options open? Do you know what I'm talking about? You ask this person, hey, do you want to hang out on Friday? And they're like, maybe. Uh, I'll let you know. 
And it's like, awesome, you're checking to see if anything better happens to pop up and I'll be the consolation prize, right? So it's like when they call you at like 5.30 on Friday, like, oh, hey, are we hanging out? It's like, no, I don't like you anymore, right? Like, I don't like being the consolation prize, right? That's what the crowd's doing. They're like, I'm for Jesus if you'll accomplish this for me. But if you're not going to do that, I'm going to hang with the Pharisees because they have power. And what's interesting, again, think about it. We're a week away from Palm Sunday. And I've always thought to myself, how does this crowd go from, we're going to wave palm branches and shout, Hosanna, you're the king, to shouting, crucify him a few days later? Well, here's why. Because their agenda is what they were most loyal to. They wanted freedom from Rome, and if Jesus was going to provide that, they were all in. But if he wasn't, they quickly changed their tune. Their commitment to him was what serves them best in the moment. And then look at verse 11. You see the third group. It says, the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? Right? So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, their motivation, their agenda is power and influence. And they're at the festival seeking him out. They want to have him killed because Jesus poses a threat to them. Right? Jesus has had two interactions with the Pharisees up to this point. He's gone into the temple, overthrown tables, and basically said, you're robbing the people. You're misusing the temple. Your worship is unclean. And then the second interaction Jesus had was he healed a man by the pool of Bethesda, a guy who was lame. And the Pharisees got mad because they're like, you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I'm allowed to work on the Sabbath because my father works on the Sabbath. He calls himself the son of God. And he goes, you guys claim to know the scriptures. You guys claim to be religious and godly men, yet you're missing what's right in front of you. You don't see the Messiah. And now the Pharisees, it's like people are following him. He's doing miracles. It's the talk of the town. And they're like, we've got to put an end to this threat because he's attacking our power and our influence. Their agenda puts them in opposition to Jesus. Then look at verse 14. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but it is him who sent me. All right, church, I need to get your eyes for a second. Don't miss this. In a moment when it was really, really awkward for Jesus, and in a moment where it would have been super easy for Jesus to just skip this festival, like think about how awkward it is for Jesus in this moment. He doesn't have any peace at home. His brothers don't even believe in him. You've got a crowd who's super wishy-washy, but everyone's murmuring and talking and, and rumors. Have you ever walked into a room and everyone in there all of a sudden gets quiet and you realize because they were just talking about you and they didn't know you were there? Like that's so what's happening to Jesus in every room he walks in in Jerusalem. He has Pharisees who want to kill him. But guess what Jesus does? He's faithful to hang in there. And he goes to Jerusalem and he's faithful to teach. He's faithful to do what the Lord calls him to do. He's faithful to hang in there. And again, I want us to start to set our hearts towards Good Friday. Because what we see about Jesus is that Jesus was faithful to hang in there to the very end. When Jesus was betrayed by his best friend, he hung in there. When Jesus went to the garden of Gethsemane and he asked his disciples, stay up and pray with me because my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. And he's sweating drops of blood because he's in so much anguish and his friends just fall asleep on him and they can't be there for them. He hangs in there. When he's arrested 
he hangs in there. When he is falsely accused and has to go through sham trials, he hangs in there. When he hears Peter in the courtyard deny even knowing him, his best friend, the guy he loves most, when he hears Peter saying, I never knew him, I want nothing to do with him, Jesus hangs in there. When he's whipped and beaten and spit upon and cursed and made fun of, he hung in there. When they put a crown of thorns on his head, mocking him, he hung in there. When they nailed his hands to a cross and nailed his feet and pierced his side, he hung in there. When he was hanging on a cross, suffocating and bleeding out and dying, he hung in there because he knew that his death would save us and give us life. Do you know that at any moment he could have called down an army of angels that would fought for him, that would have removed him, that would have saved him, but he was faithful to hang in there to his death. He was faithful. All right, Cal, I, I get it, but it's not Good Friday yet. Why are you talking about this? Here's why. Because there's some of us that come in here today and you're hanging on for dear life and you're really, really wanting to quit. And you're like, man, if you knew what my marriage was like or if you knew what my family situation was like and the words that are being said in our house, like it's hard to hang in there. It's hard to have faith. It's hard to keep going. Well, listen, Jesus hung in there and you have the spirit of Jesus and he promises that he's never going to leave us or forsake us. He's continuing to hang in there with you. He will give you the strength to continue to be faithful, to continue to hang in there. Maybe it's a work issue. Maybe school's overwhelming right now. Maybe it's like, man, I can't even see through the next week. I'm just in survival mode. I was talking with a family of ours in our church after the Saturday night service, and they're like, man, even just coming to church and raising our hands in worship is us doing our best to hang in there because life is hard. Jesus hung in there for us. We can continue to hang in there. He'll empower us to do that. Okay, so here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I want to get after this question. When does my agenda become a problem? If agendas aren't an issue in and by themselves, but they can quickly take control of our lives, how do I know if my agenda is becoming problematic? Well, here's three keys to knowing if your agenda is a problem. Here's the first. Um, our agenda is a problem when my timing takes first place. And uh, this was the issue with Jesus' brothers, right? Jesus' brothers like, hey, you need to go to Judea right now. You need to do miracles right now. And you need to prove yourself as the Messiah because that's going to make our life easier. They didn't want to yield their agenda to Jesus. They wanted what they wanted on their time and on their terms. And church, I would say that this is a massive danger for all of us, sometimes in big ways and sometimes in small ways. Um, I would say that almost every pastor on our staff here at our church has done some form of premarital counseling with couples. And a lot of times it's super fun and it's great and we love doing weddings and we love celebrating love and marriages in our church. But other times we go through this pre-marriage counseling process and we're like, please don't marry this person. <laughs> It's not a good fit. This person's not going to lead you. They don't love the Lord. This relationship is a disaster and getting married isn't going to fix it. But the problem is, is oftentimes that people that are getting married, they already have an agenda. I don't want to be alone. I want to get married. I, I don't want to be lonely. Like I'm doing this. And if it's not this person, it might not be anyone ever. So, so even though I know that there's some unhealth in the relationship, I'm just going to move forward because I want to be married and I want to have a family, but I'm going to do it on my time and my terms. 
And then what happens is, is like three years down the road, all of a sudden they're back and they're applying for soul care and they're like, yeah, there's real problems in our marriage. And it was an unwillingness to hit the brakes, to slow down, to yield an agenda to the Lord. But it's not even just in big things like marriage. I would argue that most of the time, the low-grade frustration you feel in your life is because things aren't happening for you as quickly as you want them to. You're just not happy with your stage of life, right? Like, I'm so ready for my kids to poop in the toilet, right? Like, I'm so tired of changing diapers, and I'm grumpy about it, and I'm sick of it, and I just want this to be done, right? And rather than being like, man, my kids are a gift, and I love my family, and God's given me this gift to serve. No, no, I I just want to be to the next stage. Or, man, I thought my career would be moving faster, or I'm so done with school. And what happens is, is we're consumed with our agenda, our timing, our terms, that we don't like the place that Jesus has us in. So rather than trusting that that's what's best for our heart, we just get frustrated. And by the way, frustration is just the effects of selfishness. Moving inward and thinking about yourself always leads you to getting more grumpy and more miserable. I would argue that the low-grade frustration in your life is dealing with you just want things your way and your timing. Our agenda becomes dangerous when we are are more committed to our timeline rather than the Lord's. Here's the second key. It's this. I know my agenda is problematic when my agenda causes compromise. Right? This is the crowd's problem. Right, the crowd is so frustrating in this passage because they're just so wishy-washy. For they're for Jesus as long as it doesn't cost them anything. But if loyalty to Jesus means putting them into conflict with the Pharisees, they're just going to stay quiet. They're just playing both sides. They're on the fence. When following Jesus comes into conflict with their agenda, they punt on boldly following Jesus. So here's the question. What do we do When our agenda, what we want, comes into conflict with us following and worshiping and serving the Lord, right? In that moment, it's really easy to make compromises, isn't it? I was um, having a conversation with my friend, and uh, he's trying to put together a business deal, and he's trying to get people to come in and invest on this deal. And we were talking about it, and he's like, Cal, I really think it's a good deal. And he goes, I think if I can get the right people to come in, he goes, I'm confident we can make 20% on the deal. But if everything goes perfect, we can make like 55 or 60% on the deal. And I told my friend, I said, you need to be really careful in how you sell this to people, right? Don't compromise your integrity and promise a return that you're not certain you can give these guys. If you're like, if everything turns out perfectly, we can get 60%. Don't go to guys and say, hey, you're going to make 60% if you come with me. Because you even say that that's not likely. Go with what you can be certain or what you're most confident that you think this deal will produce. And say, hey, there's potential for even more. But don't lie. Don't be dishonest. Don't compromise your integrity to get this deal over the line. How many of us, our need to be liked, our need to have people think well of us, it compromises bold witness in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces, right? We've got this agenda. I want to see my kids excel in sports and in school. And by the way, that's great. But what happens is, is all of a sudden we look at our calendar and it's like, man, it is academia and it's sports and that's what's driving our life. And the spiritual side of their life will fit in if we have time for it. 
yeah, they don't really go to youth group. We, we really, really sporadic about church, and they're not in community. They're not serving anyone. Um, but, but man, they're really, really good at lacrosse, and that's taking up all of our time. It gets backwards. We're compromising because the agenda is what's leading the family. Right, Our desire for financial security, we make compromises and we're not generous back to the Lord like he commands us to, or we're not generous with others. We are viewing our stuff as ours and we're hoarding it rather than viewing ourselves as stewards looking to be a blessing to God and others with what we have. Our agenda becomes problematic when it leads us to compromising our discipleship to Jesus. Um, can I ask a bold question right now? How many of you are like, man, I have for sure been through seasons in my life where my faith feels really dry and I feel distanced from God? Can we like raise our hand high and be honest in church? Okay, I talk with a lot of you. I've had this in my life. I, I, I'm no different than you. Um, here's what I found as I kind of look back on my life. Most of the time when I'm in a dry spell with my relationship with the Lord, I have an agenda problem. Maybe even not knowingly, I've allowed other things to creep up to the top of my priority list. And, and that's causing frustration or it's causing selfishness or it's causing me not to prioritize the Lord right in my life. And my problem is, is my agendas are running wild. They're causing me to compromise on the things that I know are most important. Like, listen, just because you're in a dry season doesn't mean you don't love the Lord. And so often I'm like Paul where it's like the things that I want to do, I don't. And the very things that I don't want to do, I do. And it's like, man, I love the Lord and I know that he is the path towards life. And I know that it's better to be close with him than anything else in the world. But I can't seem to find myself in that place. If you're like that this morning, can I just encourage you? Start kind of filtering through what are the agendas? What are the things driving your life? And are those on top of your relationship with Christ? Or are you yielding those things to the Lord. Then here's the third um, one, and this is obvious. Um, I know my agenda is a problem when my agenda leads to outright rejection of Jesus. Look at verse 18. This is talking about the Pharisees. It says, the one who speaks on his own authority, Jesus says, seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answers, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Okay, so think about how crazy this is. You have to remember Everyone in Jerusalem, the Pharisees included, they wanted the Messiah. That was the thing they wanted the most. They wanted the Messiah to come. And Jesus is there and he's teaching them and he is the true Messiah, but he is coming at a cost to the Pharisees' power and authority. And it causes them to accuse the Messiah of being demon-possessed. Their agenda is so wild and running rampant in their hearts that the things of God they view as the things of Satan. They're rejecting the thing they want the most. Like, it's crazy. Um, all right, so one quick story from Israel. I think you'll find this interesting. Um, we were in Jerusalem on the second half of our trip, and we went by the Wailing Wall. I don't know if you guys have seen this before, but it's a wall that a lot of the Orthodox Jews and religious Jews, they come and they pray at. And it's because this wall is 2,000 years old, and it's um, like the last segment of the remaining wall that was around the temple before it was destroyed. And so they go and they pray. They believe it's the holiest spot in the world. They believe that God's glory left the earth when the temple was destroyed, but this part still has a little like hint of God's glory left in it. And what the Jews today want more than anything is they want the temple to re be rebuilt, 
What the Jews want, rebuild the temple. The problem is, is the place where the temple needs to go is in Muslim control. And the Muslims obviously won't let them build the temple there. But every day, three times a day, Jews pray, God, please allow us to build the temple. It is on their minds constantly. And uh, we were touring this uh, wall and I talked to Arez, who was our, our guide. He's an um, Israeli man, but is a believer. And I, I said, all right, Arez, so right now, the rabbis are the ones that have all of the power and authority religiously in Israel. He's like, yep. And I'm like, but if and when they rebuild the temple, um, it's going to go back to priests because there's going to be sacrifices and priests have to be Levites. So doesn't that mean that a lot of rabbis will have to lose their power and give that up if the temple is actually going to be built? Doesn't that mean there's going to be a whole nother crew of people running things? And Arez looked at me and smiled. He goes, Cal, you're onto something that's a real problem. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, do you know that there's been times in our country's history in the last 20 or 30 years where we've had the ability to get that land and rebuild the temple and get it back from the Muslims and the ones who block it in our government are the rabbis? So it's like they know that if a temple's built, all of a sudden they lose the power and authority and the political cachet of their position. So it's like the very thing they pray for and the very thing they want, they actually act in opposition for secretly because it's going to cost them power. It's like, man, this is the exact same thing that happened with Jesus 2,000 years ago. He was the Messiah. He was the one that they were hoping for and praying for. And he was offering them salvation for eternity. And they rejected him because their agenda was their power and authority. And it's such an amazing picture of how devastating agendas can be. And uh, here's what I want to say as we close. It's that discipleship to Jesus will establish a right hierarchy in our lives. Again, agendas themselves, motives aren't the problem. We just have to align it in the right hierarchy in submission to Jesus. In Philippians 3, Paul writes this. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Here's what Paul says. He, he goes, man, everything else in my life, in comparison to knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and following Jesus, they were worthless to me. Now, listen, Paul was still brilliant. But before he met Christ, his agenda was, I want to be seen as brilliant, and I want to be seen as righteous, and I want to be a leader. But he's like, man, when I found Christ, it was like, man, Jesus, I'm going to lay down those things. I'm going to worship you and honor you. And if that means that I've got to suffer loss, if that means that you're going to move me here, there, and everywhere, I'm just going to follow you because where you are is where life is. Again, I need you to hear me. Whatever your agenda is, whatever it is that drives you, they aren't necessarily wrong or bad. They're actually really good and they make you who you are if they live in submission to Jesus. So do me a favor, throw up that list again. Right, we went through different types of agendas. What does it look like to put these things in a right hierarchy to Jesus Christ? Well, here's what it means. Let's use health as an example. It's okay to want to be healthy. It's okay to want to look good. It's okay to want to be active. It's okay to want to eat right and pursue those things. All of those are good things if it's like, but you know what? My hope is not in my physical body. 
And my hope is not in this world at all, but I have Jesus who the Bible calls a lover of my soul. And there's a part of me that is eternal, that's going to last forever. And I'm going to be with God forever. So I'm also going to focus on my heart and make sure that just as I'm disciplined with my body, I'm disciplined with my heart and I'm seeking after the Lord because he is the one who holds my hope. Right, maybe it's deep relationships or wanting people to like you. Right, that's good. But you also understand that Jesus says, right, the world's going to sometimes hate you because it hated me first. And so I do want to love people. I do want to have deep relationships, but sometimes I'm going to have to love people enough to tell them the difficult thing that they don't want to hear. Sometimes I'm going to have to risk a difficult conversation because I love you and I want to grow in depth of our relationships and what you're doing isn't honoring to the Lord and it's hurting you and it's not right. Right, man, I want to provide opportunities for my kids and I want them to have great experiences. And it's like, that's awesome. But what our kids need more than anything else is first of all, they need Jesus Christ. The second thing they need is they need to be reminded that joy is found in actually laying down your preferences and serving others, that life doesn't revolve around us. So in how we parent, in how we steward our family, we're going to continue to say, hey, look to the Lord and look to others. It's not all about us and our skills and our life and our schedule. Can I ask you a bold question? Here, here's how I wanna close as we kind of start to lead in towards Holy Week. I wanna close with three questions. Here's the first. Um, what agendas do you tend to have? I'm hoping and praying right now that the Lord and the Holy Spirit's kind of laying that on my heart, like, oh, that's my thing. This is the thing that kind of motivates and can run wild in my heart. Let me ask you the next question. What does it look like in your life when the, that agenda runs wild in you and that becomes the priority? Can I ask you a question? Does it lead to growth and to joy and to life? Or does it lead to stress and anxiety and broken relationships and depression and all of the things that come with rejecting the Lord? And then the third question is, is um, what does placing my agenda under the Lordship of Christ look like practically? And I think even as we start to think of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, I always think it's a good moment to ask ourselves the tough questions. Man, am I really all in on following Jesus? Or are there some things even now, even though I love Jesus and have followed him for a long time, are there things that have gotten out of order in my heart? In church, what I wanna be is I wanna be a church that's cool with admitting, hey, things are out of order right now and I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna repent and I'm gonna talk to someone to get some accountability in my life, but I want to genuinely seek and follow the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for um, today. I thank you for um, this church. I thank you for your word, God. And I'm thankful that you hung in there um, when things were awkward and when things were difficult. God, would you be with those who are hurting? Would you give them the encouragement to keep moving forward, to keep hanging in there? God, would you just um, really identify the things in our life that might be out of order in our heart? Would we be quick to talk to you about that? Would we seek repentance? God, we love you. We know that you hang in there with us, that you are so quick to forgive. Would you help us? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.